Welcome to Genuine Humans, exploring the stories behind the great marketing leaders of our time and hearing how their journeys have influenced the brands they've built. Brought to you by The Social Element, here are our hosts, Tamara Littleton, CEO and founder, and Wendy Christie, Chief People Officer. Welcome back to Genuine Humans podcast. And as always, I'm here with my fabulous co-host, Wendy Christie. Wendy, how are you doing? Hello. Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, actually. I'm kind of getting ready for a weekend of singing. So I'm off with my choir, Natural Voices Choir. 30 of us are heading to the Isle of Mull to uh, to sing in a concert there. Oh, that'll be lovely. Make sure you take some midgy spray just in case. Now no, I'm worried about my packing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. So we have been joined today by Ruben Arnold. And Ruben is someone that I've been wanting to get on the podcast since we actually started. And it's such a pleasure to have you here today, Ruben. Welcome. Hello. Hello, Wendy. Hi, Tamara. Uh, Ruben has had an incredible career. He's currently vice president at Claire's Accessories and previously worked at let me see, you've got leadership roles at Eurostar, Virgin, Starbucks, and we're going to hear about your, your whole career. But uh, Ruben, thank you again for being with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, I've been a fan of the podcast for some time. So yeah, I feel a little bit of a fraud being here, really, if I'm honest, with some so many wonderful people that I've listened to. But yeah, thanks for inviting me. I can't wait to get started. Thank you. So I gave a few little highlights of your career, but Do you want to share how you actually got into marketing in the first place and kind of go back to your early career and just give us a a nice sort of ramble through the years? Yeah, and it probably will be a ramble, so uh, do stop me. But I mean, hey, I mean, I guess the first thing to say is I sort of fell into marketing, if I'm honest. I certainly never had clear goal to be a marketeer or even really imagined myself working in marketing. And actually, it probably is that fact that I sort of fell into it that's led to, you know, some of the dreaded imposter syndrome at times during my career, particularly, you know, when now I see so many bright young talent coming into the teams that that I lead, you know, have these amazing qualifications and experience and a real hunger uh, to progress in their marketing careers. But, you know, so I, f- I, f- I feel a bit of a fraud sometimes when people look to me and say, well, how did you get into your marketing career and what advice can you give? And uh, I realised having said that, that I realise that I'm not alone. I think a lot of my peers are actually in the same situation of taking a bit of that zigzag route, but maybe more of that later. I mean, I, I actually started my career in retail, Tamara, but, um, mm. which is a rather poncy way of saying I worked in shops. <laughs> and as a student during school holidays, I guess the one that really sort of had the most impact was when I worked for the body shop. Um, which is sort of where I started my retail career. I, I really loved it. It was, you know, it's actually in those early years of the body shop in the mid 80s when the business was still really young. I mean, it was less than 10 years old. Um, and it was, it was in many ways like a new breed of retailer. Yeah, such a groundbreaking brand. Amazing. And at that time, really, truly pioneering. You know, it, 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 was, it was one that really was truly purpose-driven in those days, you know, and Mm. still is, I think, you know, pioneering in so many different areas from championing cruelty-free cosmetics, rejecting animal testing, but also 
everything from ethical direct sourcing, environmental responsibility. And, you know, actually, I still sort of fondly remember standing in this tiny back room, filling hundreds of bottles of shampoo and peppermint foot lotion and handwriting labels on. I mean, you'd never get away with it now. <laughs> so it was quite groundbreaking but in many ways it was um so for me it was kind of more of a more than just a student job if that makes sense I, I think it was I felt kind of vested in in the brand and what it stood for and I was lucky enough because it was in the early days to have met and worked quite a few times with Anita Roddick the founder oh, wow. and you know I, rem- I remember even back then being sort of that was she was really truly inspiring and, and I know mm-hmm. that's an overused word but I mean she she really was not not just because she had this amazing vision and, and talked a lot about business being a you know, force for good and all of that. But just her sort of natural humility and her ability to just really galvanize excitement within the team. I, and for, as a young, impressionable person, it, it, was, it, was, it made quite a mark on me. But I think the other thing is that I remember what I remember of that job was that, you know, ultimately we were selling bubble bath and soap, really. But back then we were actually creating an experience for customers um, in that true sense. And I just loved seeing people coming in and, you know, they pick everything up and smell it and discover. And actually, I think we were one of the only retailers that used to have, if you remember, like testers on every product. That was not really a thing before. Um, And yeah, people just loved hearing more about this weird and wonderful natural ingredients and the stories behind the sourcing. And I think that sort of just really sparked my passion for, you know, creating those memorable and unique experiences for customers and, you know, storytelling, you know, all those things that we now talk about, we didn't talk about them then. So so for me, that although it was a very, very early job, it it did have quite an impact on my on my career. But now I am rambling. But I guess to to cut a long story short, from being a student job after finishing uh, uni in the UK, I moved back home to Belgium. um, And my boss at the time, uh, who was actually Anita Roddick's very first franchisee, asked me to come back full-time as a store manager. So now I think I can say I worked in retail at that point. It was mm-hmm. that's, That was a proper retail job. So I, I did that for a couple of years, managed a couple of stores as a district manager. And, I, you know, as much as I loved it, I actually, it was very simply I wanted to move back to the UK because having spent my uni years here, you know, a lot of my friends were here and as well as my future wife. And then... You know, one day I saw this ad in the paper, proper old school, that's how we used to find jobs in the (laughs) olden days, um, for this new company that was going to run train services through this channel tunnel thing that was being built. And they were actually going to run trains underneath the actual sea, um, (laughs) which just seemed like, you know, so futuristic. And I just thought, you know, they were looking for people who had customer experience, a customer service experience and who spoke you know, French, Dutch and, and languages to work on board the train. So I thought, brilliant, that would be great fun. I'll just do that for a year or so and I'll be able to move to London but still travel home whenever I want. So anyway, that's how I started my initial career at Eurostar. And, you know, I really feel, I mean, I was so lucky to have joined the business when I did because it was effectively a startup back then mm-hmm. in the mid-90s. Can I make myself <laughs> so old? <laughs> experienced and wise is what we get sorry exactly yeah I mean I I can't believe I actually started there before the trains themselves started running but anyway um but it it really was again a really exciting time to be part of of that business because it was a a a startup and 
I mean, I started my 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 first job was on board the train, and actually every every journey was an occasion, and it was genuinely quite a privilege to be part of creating those experiences for passengers. You know, I mean. <laughs> People used to sort of dress up and make a real event of it back then. And also every day was different. I think it also, it required a lot of resilience because every journey was in fact, when it was more than an experience, it was a bit more of an adventure really because, you know, everything that could go wrong did used to go wrong. So, <laughs> um, but anyway, I spent about 18 months on board, uh, including learning how to drive the train. Um, oh, but, wow. Um, and not a skill that has ever really served me um, well in the future. You never know. You never know. <laughs> I'm the person you need to travel. I don't know if I'll be able to do it now, to be fair. Um, <laughs> but I sort of moved up the ranks into sort of more junior management positions, and you know, leading teams of onboard crews, and then into sort of broader operational roles, running customer service and operations across the, the different countries. But... I think the reason I mention that is because actually as a result of the various sort of operational management experience, back back in, I think it was about 2004 or the mid-2000s, mid I was approached by the then CEO to lead the St Pancras project. You know, because with the opening of the new high-speed line, we were moving the, the station from Waterloo where it was to, to St Pancras. And mm. I mean, it was a phenomenal opportunity, again, really right place, right time, you know, I had this unique opportunity to really reimagine what the customer proposition was going to be, starting almost with a blank canvas, albeit within the constraints of a grade two listed building. But really, you know, an opportunity to think about customer experience and, and there have been a lot of changes over the years. So post 9-11, we had 100% security screening, passport checks, so all stuff that didn't exist in the early days. So, but, but also technology had advanced a lot. So, you know, customers' expectations had changed around things like mobile, self-check-in, et cetera. So I, I guess that was where I really made that first leap from delivering and leading customer experience in more frontline operational roles to kind of more defining and designing brand experience. If, right. again, I don't think we called it that at the time. Yeah, so I think it's also where I sort of made that first leap or sort of move from leading a team uh, or, or sort of being the functional expert to leading a team who had functional expertise so not having all the answers myself which I think you're quite used to when you're in operational roles you're used to sort of doing whereas yeah. this was a kind of a, a more right I, I don't know anything about construction uh, project management I need people who know how to do that thing mm -hmm. and I need to not get too I need to not meddle too much in it so anyway, I stayed uh, stayed on at Eurostar, um, did a couple more years there, heading up customer experience, loyalty, CRM, a few other sort of projects like new trains, all very interesting. But amazing years that I spent at Eurostar, really varied experience and gain that I gained in many areas. But I think then I just sort of, I think I was coming up to 19 years at Eurostar, which I... I, I still kind of justify by saying because it was such an exciting period of change and there were so many different things happening, um, and that's why I stayed so long. But I was conscious that I was sort of in danger of becoming a bit institutionalised. Uh, so I took the leap and moved to Virgin Atlantic. And actually, initially, my role there was uh, on the leadership team was, was specifically customer experience. So director of customer experience leading sort of all the functions that design delivered all the aspects of the experience, both on the ground and in the air. I mean, including some really exciting areas like aircraft design, um, innovation, catering. So it was, you know, it was a really exciting job. 
But again, actually, it was thanks to the then CEO, a guy called Craig Krieger, that my remit was sort of expanded to this new CMO role, which brought together customer experience, but also brand and marketing. Mm. What was really interesting was that, you know, I had dabbled in some aspects of marketing, but I had never really been handed this marketing responsibility per se of all aspects of uh, of all sort of cross-channel marketing communication. And I mean, whilst it was a great great opportunity, you know, it's it's also quite daunting because you think, my God, there's this sort of phenomenal brand like Virgin Atlantic and somebody's just decided that I'm going to be able to do marketing. (laughs) (laughs) But... you know, I think maybe we'll talk about it later, but I think that's that's something that's been sort of quite consistent in my career is that I've never really kind of gone out looking for these opportunities, but I've had great leaders who have identified things in myself that I didn't really know or skills that I didn't really know I had myself, if that makes sense. So anyway, a, a phenomenal five years uh, at Virgin Atlantic, you know, period of amazing change. We I've sort of worked on this reinvigorating the Virgin Atlantic brand and trying to reassert our market position and I think actually by what was amazing the the foresight that the CEO had about bringing customer experience and brand marketing together was you know how when you sort of re-articulate brand purpose and what the brand stands for but you also have the opportunity to really tangibly deliver against that purpose and that promise through through your innovation and the experiences that you create was just was was just amazing really that because quite often you can you can work on these things in a vacuum but you don't really have the opportunity to truly see it through so yeah anyway that was my my time at, at virgin atlantic crazy times great fun and some great holidays as well, actually. But I was, I was just going to say, <laughs> I didn't know if it was appropriate to say, but I'm hoping that you got some good flights out of it as well. <laughs> I know. The only the only downside to that is that, like, with my kids growing up, I sort of created these monsters, you know, like they just expect to always go away to do go to fabulous places. And I don't think they ever flew, knew what the back of the plane looked like either. But anyway, I sort nice. of tried to, tried to beat that out of them subsequently. <laughs> But I was lured to um, this role at Starbucks. And again, I guess what really attracted me to Starbucks was the opportunity to work on one of these iconic brands and heading up this area of brand and marketing for quite an interesting region. So it was the Emir region. So we had about 45 markets across the Europe, Middle East and Africa region. And, you know, it's a, Starbucks is a brand that has, you know, amazing awareness. So everyone can see the logo and knows, know what it does. But, but certainly in our markets here, we'd never really told that brand story. And, that, you know, it, it certainly wasn't ever seen as a purpose-led brand and quite the opposite in many markets in actual fact. So the, 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 the potential to try and deal with that was, uh, was really interesting for me. And also quite a complex a business in terms of ownership model it's heavily licensed a- across the region so anyway i um took on that role and again I, I guess a bit like my time at virgin initially i went in there to do a brand and marketing role but the my my boss at the time a guy called martin who was the the president of amia sort of then approached me to expand my role to to, to also include things like product strategy research and development category management so so more commercial role effectively as well as digital and i think that commercial category management part of the role was again a bit like the marketing thing at virgin atlantic was like oh my god me i mean i don't really know anything about that why is he asking me to do it i'll just fake it i'll fake it i'll make it happen 
again, I think he recognized something in my abilities that I wasn't able to recognize myself. And actually it made for a, again, a, a really interesting role in that you were designing customer propositions and really help really delivering that brand through the, the tangible things that we were doing for customers. So yeah, it really enjoyed, um, really enjoyed my time at Starbucks. It included the famous COVID years, you know, those sort of three yeah. years that we lost somewhere in yes. between. And I'm sure we've all got stories about how, you know, and what that taught us. But I left Starbucks at a time when my wife was very unwell and I sort of just had to make a decision really to, to focus my full energy and, and time on my family. So mm-hmm. uh, I took some time out. Uh, and then I returned to work last summer, but this time, for, as you mentioned, for Claire's Accessories, which, again, it's probably a little bit left field. And uh, I sort of thought about it for a long time. And it's, it's a business that actually has a lot of similarities to Starbucks. I mean, you probably can't imagine how, but uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a 50-year-old American brand um, with a kind of global multi-channel footprint. You know, it's across, yes, we, we have retail stores, but big presence in CPG and, and online. But also one that's on a really exciting and very interesting transformation journey. And that's really what attracted me to the role. You know, it's how how... Do you take these iconic brands that have got a lot of love and nostalgia, but really need to sort of reinvent themselves and make themselves relevant for a, for a new audience? And I mean, my God, the audience that shops at Claire's could not have evolved more rapidly. You know, that generation alpha, generation Z or Z, you know, is, is a, a, a really fascinating or core audience and one that, mm-hmm. you know, their, their values, their, their, their interests uh, and how they shop are just massively uh, evolving. And I think being part of sort of reshaping that heritage brand for a, for a rapidly changing core customer base, it's, it's a brand that's always been rooted in self-expression, self-discovery, but now more than ever, that's an amazing opportunity to, to sort of take those core values and sort of amplify them. But anyway, so that, that's where I am now. Although, as you mentioned at the beginning, I am about to embark on a new role in, in actually in an industry that I'm really probably is where my true passion lies. So in leisure and hospitality, and I really, for me, I can think of no greater privilege really of helping families make memories through the precious time that mm-hmm. they spend, you know, on holiday together. Um, so yeah, I'm really, really excited about that. I will tell you afterwards where I'm going, but um... <laughs> we'll keep, we'll keep <laughs> it secret from there. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's, it, we'll have it in the footnotes if, it, yeah. if the timing is right, but uh, <laughs> But it's it's so interesting because there is a theme you were sort of saying about, you know, that other people have spotted uh, something in you that you couldn't necessarily see. But everything that you were saying, it makes so much sense about the combination of the customer experience with the brands and that you've been either, as you say, reinvigorating um, more sort of heritage brands or being there right, the, right at the start in terms of like Eurostar, which is uh, so exciting. So it's it's kind of we, we've had this before with the podcast that when people sort of sit back and look at it, you go oh my god it makes total sense that that's <laughs> the sort of path that I've taken but doesn't always make sense if I made it. a plan yeah. for myself that's what it would have been yeah <laughs> that, so that's interesting you say that can we talk about 
you know, when you were a child, what you wanted to be. I mean, you said um, earlier that you kind of fell into marketing. Mm. And, and that's something that, that's, uh, as you know, because I know that you listen, that some of our other guests have said mm. as well. And I don't think we've spoken to anyone yet who said, when I was nine, what I really wanted to do was work in marketing and brand experience. Yeah. So it'd be really, um, it would be good to hear what, what, we, what was your childhood dream and what were you like as a child? Oh, um, gosh, I, you know, I could make something up, but I can genuinely say I don't think I had a childhood dream. Like I'd, I'd love to say, oh, I really wanted to be a doctor, but I can honestly say that I've never really had a goal. And I know that makes it sound like I just sort of drifted from one thing to another, but I think it's just through a series of things that you do, you find aspects of a job that really drive you. And I, I guess yeah, it doesn't really answer your question, Wendy. But yeah, don't don't didn't have a dream, but I've found things along the way that I've that. I just find really interesting. And I think probably one of the main ones is people. That's where I get my energy from. Yeah. Um, and I say that because, well, you know, for a brief period of time, I, I did some consulting and I absolutely hated it because I just thought, well, oh, I'm just sitting here on my own. Like it just, um, mm. I, I just had no, I just didn't find any drive or excitement because then I realized what it was. It was because I wasn't part of a team or leading a team or being yeah. surrounded by people. Yeah, that wasn't a great answer to your question about what was I like as a child, but well, you know. Well, it's, it's a start. It's good. <laughs> and so, and but were there people that you looked up to? Whether it was people you knew or teachers or uh, as as a child? Yeah, yeah. I mean, listen. I, I, in retrospect, you always look back and think, "Gosh, yeah, they were a great teacher, or they mm-hmm. they really encouraged you." I think. Actually, uh, not wishing to be too deep, but my parents actually inspired me a lot. Again, probably mm-hmm. mostly in retrospect, um, because <laughs> they, they, my, both my parents are artists and they, I mean, they worked as teachers as I was growing up, mostly to pay the bills. But I think what they taught me was that, you know, I think sometimes at school you can, it's really drilled into you that academia is, has the true value. Whereas I think what my parents instilled in me was, Everybody has different skills and, you know, creativity uh, and some of these other skills are as important as, you know, your maths grades. You still need to get good maths grades, by the way. But um, <laughs> I think I, I, I'm really grateful for that that they instilled yeah. in me, which was, you, you know, you need to recognise different skills are of equal importance. It's so true. And, um, and you, you've already talked a little bit about some of the the, the managers or the leaders that you've mm. worked with who've seen things in you that you, you didn't necessarily know were there. Are there any people in particular that you'd like to shout out as having been particularly supportive or helpful or, or influencing you in your career? Yeah, I mean, I in a funny kind of way, probably the very, very first managers I had. So, you know, we, it's easy to look at sort of more senior leaders and yeah, I, I, I'm very grateful for them as well. But actually when you're making that very first step on the ladder into a sort of a bigger role, I think those those kind of men, and there's one in particular, my time at Eurostar, uh, a guy called Alan, he knows who he is, was, was effectively, uh, you know, he's kind of a middle manager really, but he proactively sought me out and suggested that I consider applying for a particular job and I think that was the very first time again that somebody recognized something in me that I hadn't recognized in myself and gave me the confidence to to believe that I might be able to do it and then supported me both in terms of getting the job but also supported me in my time doing the job you know he encouraged me but also helped me to make to be successful so Mm -hmm. 
I probably kind of go back to just yeah, very, very early managers rather than sort of inspiring leaders. Gotcha. And I've had plenty of those as well. But yeah, those are the ones that stick out mostly in my mind. I've always loved your relationship with uh, Emma Harris, who, of course, is a, a shared friend and she's on our yeah. board as well. And the, the way that the two of you talk about your time at Eurostar and how you built King's Cross. It's just a lovely relationship. Brick by brick, Tamara. <laughs> <laughs> is there any advice that you'd, you'd want to give to uh, people who are just starting out in their career? Well, I, I guess... As I've already mentioned, I think it's really important to realise that those that the the richest and most rewarding career opportunities don't always come from that linear path. I think that you, yeah. you know when you when we imagine that we sort of map out a career path for ourselves, and I think it's what I've learned certainly is you just sometimes you've just got to chill out and go with the flow and be open to left field opportunities because those are the ones that often lead you to more interesting places. And, and I think from memory, I think Helen Tupper was on your podcast yes. a few yes. weeks mm-hmm. ago. And squiggly yeah. careers. Yeah. yeah and I, I love the way she talks about the squiggly career mm-hmm. path and, you know, not being obsessed with that ladder. And I, I see it sometimes in more junior people in my team that that's all they can see is they want to get to the next, the next job. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, in order to embrace that squiggly career, sorry, it's, I don't know if it's trademarked. You, you know, it's you, all right. She's been a guest. She oh, won't so mind. That's right. She'll let's <laughs> off. She'll let's off. But I think, you know, you, you clearly, you have to really understand what your personal super strengths yeah. are and what your values are. But I think she also talks about ditching the gremlins from memory. But mm-hmm. in my experience, it's sometimes it's very difficult to do those things to understand what your superpowers are you know we all have imposter syndrome so that's where great leaders play such a vital role in helping you recognize like i described some of the great leaders i've had mm-hmm. uh to, to sort of help you articulate and identify what your skills and your superpowers are but then also helping you give you the confidence to deal with that those gremlins and but most, mostly even sometimes just pointing things out, like, have you considered this role? And I've, I've, I've seen it a few times in my career with people in my team where I've suggested things and their first reaction is like, that's totally mm-hmm. random. Why would mm-hmm. I want to do that? But they then said, you know, quite a few years later, oh my God, I can't, that was the best thing I ever did. So I think, yeah, that's, that's the only career advice that certainly from my own lived experience is mm-hmm. to kind of just go with the flow and consider things that you might not otherwise consider and yeah, be open to people telling you sometimes what your skills are because it's sometimes difficult to recognize them yourself. Yeah. Let's carry on with that theme of leadership. So what kind of leader are you and what has been the biggest influence on your leadership style? Well, I mean, other leaders I think have certainly had an influence, but for me, I think I come back to this notion of authenticity which I think is kind of quite relevant for this podcast of, you know, genuine humans, which is why I love it so much. And I think, I think it's just one of the most important leadership qualities and one that's often overlooked as not being as important. And, you know, I know it sounds like buzzwords and a bit woke if we're allowed to say that to some, but, you know, we all deliver at our best when we feel we can bring our whole self to work and feel Mm -hmm empowered just to be our genuine selves um you know that fear of failure that we all have to some degree or fear of being found out is often the biggest barrier to being brave enough to try new things to you know challenge the status quo achieve great things and you know i think 
I've, I mean, I've done it myself earlier on in my career. You know, we all create those artificial personas as a bit of a protective layer. You know, we, we're someone completely different at work than we are outside of work. So uh, to answer your question, Tamara, I mean, I think I've always strived to kind of create this genuine sense that people can just be themselves because, you know, after all that, that's actually where our, going back to what we were saying before, that's our, those, those are where our superpowers lie. You know, that's what makes mm. you unique and what makes your contribution most valuable. So yeah, authenticity. And I think true authenticity, certainly as a leader, also means being vulnerable. And, you know, I know, you know, my personal situation has really helped me to be more vulnerable and, and sort of empathetic, I suppose, in my style. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you guys know, I mean, I lost my wife to breast cancer just over a year ago. But actually, she had, I mean, she was first diagnosed over 20 years ago. So um, sort of supporting her as well as my kids through kind of many periods of very punishing treatments and mm-hmm. over the years, and also being a carer myself, um, I think it's taught me a lot personally and professionally in terms of authenticity and uh, and vulnerability. Because I think you you have to role model that behavior if you expect mm-hmm. other people to feel comfortable to to bring themselves to work. So, you know, I guess what I mean is that we've all got shit going on, haven't we? I mean, it doesn't have to be some traumatic life event, but we're all juggling lots of stuff and it's all relevant for individuals, whatever that stuff is. So work is just one aspect of our multifaceted life. So, you know, we can't all always be on our A game 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, taking an interest in the whole person is really critical to kind of creating that environment where people just feel comfortable to show vulnerability because it helps them to perform at their best. And I think, yeah, it's, it's just a critical ingredient to, I mean, when we talk about high performance culture, I think sometimes people think that that's almost at odds with creating a, a sort of a, a comfortable, vulnerable environment. But actually I, yeah. for me, I think that's, that's what actually helps people to flourish and be high performing. There's a lot around sort of psychological safety that I've yeah. been sort of reading about. And, and I think um, it all links into that as, as well. And, and just to sort of say thank you for, for sharing your your story as well, because I think it's it's so powerful. And, and it really does, it does allow people to open up and, and share their stories as well. Yeah. And perhaps normalizing vulnerability, yeah. I suppose. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, it's it's quite. In, I mean, it's very topical as well because I, you know, there's been this really fascinating debate around this sort of dominant Raab situation. Yeah. Uh, you know, and this whole debate about what constitutes bullying just versus just kind of expecting high performance. And I don't know. It's almost like it, it has to be sort of one or the other. Anyway, I won't go down that rabbit hole. But I just thought it's it's really interesting at the moment that there's there's this sort of undertone that vulnerability means that you're not driving for high performance and you don't have high expectations for for results which you know i think couldn't be further from the truth i, th- I think you know what what we do know is you know if you're an asshole you you know you're not going to encourage <laughs> positive behavior and great results no. but you know. <laughs> yeah and and i think many leaders have shown that it is possible to be kind vulnerable yeah. and competitive as hell and exactly. really yeah. driven so they, yeah they they are not uh, yeah they, they can be together i think wendy you know you 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 asked that question in terms of memorable leaders that i've had mm-hmm. that's probably it's that unique combination that sticks out in my mind yeah. people who are demanding and expect high performance and results 
and uh, but but still do it in a way that feels supportive, um, so that you f- yeah. so that you want to achieve. It. You want to exactly. You want to perform yeah. for that person in a way, I suppose. Rather than thinking, oh my god, what happens if I fail? Yeah. <laughs> so, what are you most proud of so far, kind of personal or or career wise? I mean, it, undoubtedly, I mean, there's been some amazing milestones and just fun milestones throughout my career. You know that I'm I'm ta- I'm proud of I suppose it's it's where I've been able to make tangible changes in my mm-hmm. career so you know things like the St Pancras project that Emma and I built single-handedly uh, brick yes. by brick <laughs> and the lounge and the lounge JFK. yeah JFK <laughs> you're welcome uh, that's kind of <laughs> a very lovely Virgin Atlantic. <laughs> and actually one of the fun things that I did at Virgin Atlantic was uh, uh, working with Vivian Westwood on the new uniforms that was uh, that was great fun I mean she's oh, she, uh, nice God rest her mm. soul she was mm-hmm. utterly bonkers but um, that that was an amazing uh, project just probably more because not because it was fabulous but it, it was the impact that it had on service was incredible that's something that I probably never really fully estimated was mm-hmm the fact that the crew and all of our frontline teams suddenly felt fabulous. It just, it had a, a disproportionate impact. But anyway, I won't go into that. So I think, yeah, where I've made a, a sort of a measurable impact, um, whether that's through commercial results, positive customer metrics, but I think really it goes back to what I think I mentioned earlier on, that probably what gives me the biggest glow is those individuals that I sort of touched on that, who have attributed their career moves and success to something that I helped them to do. I think that just feels much more, uh, I'm much more proud of that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. And, you know, listen, I know it's, whilst it's flattering to be told those things, the reality is, you know, all you've really done is help them recognize and develop the strengths that they actually already have and just encourage them. It's not, it's not, I didn't give them anything. I just (laughs) helped them do the thing that people help me do, which is recognize actually you can do this and you just need to take a little bit of a leap of faith so yeah that's probably what I'm most proud of in my career that's wonderful and it's almost like um creating future leaders as well I think it's just yeah it's something to be very proud of so I think we're gonna switch over switch gears now to yes slightly more personal quick fire questions so i'll let wendy uh start off oh my god this is like that do you remember that terrible tv show star test i feel like it's that <laughs> <laughs> it's like the french and saunders sketch. Yes, that's the <laughs> uh, okay we'll start with an easy one what's your idea of a perfect weekend oh well, I feel like I should say something really clever, like, you know, cooking for friends, an amazing meal and having a slow Sunday breakfast with a newspaper. But I mean, the reality is that I suppose spending a weekend at home just means that it would never quite be as it would be in my head, if you know what I mean. Right. Everything just sort of time gets sucked up by doing drudgery, like putting the washing machine on. So I think I'd have to say I'd have to go away somewhere. Yeah. And also because I think sometimes a change of scene just it sort of strangely makes the time feel twice as long as you'll discover tomorrow when you go to Mull this weekend. <laughs> and also because you physically can't do any of those chores that are mm-hmm. always taunting you when when you're at home. So I would definitely definitely have to go away. And actually, I think we mentioned it before, but when I was at Virgin, that was one of the best things. You know, just being able to jump on a plane and go anywhere bonkers for a weekend. I mean, even though you spent most of the time on a plane, actually, and about. <laughs> seven hours in the place 
So yeah, definitely getting away, exploring somewhere, somewhere new. I love getting lost. You know, I try. I love getting lost in new places. So that's what I'd have to do. Where do you fancy? Oh, I don't know. Somewhere. I, I mean, somewhere that I haven't. I don't know. Where would I? I think somewhere in the Far East. I'd like to. I mean, I know it's a bit nuts for a weekend, but you know, somewhere. Somewhere like that, where the culture is so different and, you know, you struggle to read signs and that kind of thing. That's the best way to get lost. Well, we said perfect weekend. So let's, we can say teleportation. Yeah, okay, a that's thing true, yeah. Perfect weekend. Great. <laughs> so, and on a slightly different note, how would you fare in a zombie apocalypse? Uh, you know, I think I'd be okay in a zombie apocalypse, or at least I don't think I'd freak out. So I think my default approach in a crisis is to go back to my sort of operational contingency planning mode. I've, in some of my roles, I've, and it sounds very grand, but I was like a gold commander or major incident coordinator. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, love a drama, love a drama. <laughs> and I, I think actually tomorrow, I think you'd probably be a little bit the same. You'd go straight into your crisis management mode. It should be crisis yeah. mode straight away. Yeah. So but I'm I'd, also imagining you creating a lovely sort of Vivian Westwood uh, outfits for the zombies perhaps. yeah totally that would that would appease mm-hmm. them rebrand them yeah fabulous. exactly <laughs> yeah but yeah I, I just love that buzz of having to think on my feet i you know i hate boring planning so i think it i think it would uh yeah i think i'd be all right although i, I think i'd be probably be so busy trying to plan solutions and contingencies and trying to negotiate with the zombies that rather than you know rather than just running away and hiding which is what i should really be doing i'd probably just get eaten <laughs> or I don't know, whatever zombies do to you when they catch you, but... um, (laughs) You just start leading them all. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So food. You know that Wendy and I both love our food, and I know you love your food. What's your favourite restaurant or food experience so far? Well, this is where I am going to say, like, I'm going to do cooking, but I... I mean, I am, I wouldn't say I'm a fussy eater, but I am, I've been a vegetarian pretty much my whole life. And so I do prefer to cook for myself sometimes. Mm -hmm. But I, when I cook for myself, I just like really simple food. And my wife uh, and her family are from Sicily. And actually that's my favorite cuisine. It's just the simplicity of a, of a Mediterranean diet that relies wholly on flavors I mean, I'm, don't get me wrong. I love going to a Ponzi restaurant as much as the next person and, you know, <laughs> having food that's been constructed with tweezers. But uh, actually, <laughs> my preference is just really, the, you know, flavors of the sun and the simple food that relies on, on the sun. Perfect. And do you have a secret talent that not many people know about? Well, I've already mentioned driving a train, so the secret's out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> How would your friends describe you? Oh, um, well, I think actually if I'd asked them a few years ago, probably as a little bit flaky and always late, but I have really, really tried to uh, to get better at that. I think just somebody who has terrible FOMO. So if ever there's, I mean, if ever there's anything you know, a gathering, I'm the first one to turn up and quite often the last to leave. I'm not sure that's a good thing. Normally I gate crash <laughs> a lot of your events tomorrow. <laughs> always welcome so i think just the the sort of go-to person that if you want someone to come out i'm always up for it so um yeah that's not very glowing endorsement from my friends but hopefully they would also say that i am very trustworthy and uh i will always lend uh, an ear and i will always be there for them if they if they need me We've come to the end of the podcast, which I can't quite believe, but um, I want to say thank you again for, for coming and joining us. And is there anything 
that you wanted to talk about that we haven't asked or any closing thoughts from you? No, I, d- I don't think so. I mean, we covered a lot and uh, I probably rambled on for too long, but I just thank you so much for inviting me. As I said at the beginning, you know, I really enjoyed the podcast because I think it's just it, it focusing on, focuses on a topic that just really resonates with me. And it's really fascinating to get so many different perspectives of different people in different careers. So thank you for inviting me on and yeah, just... at risk of repeating myself it's just that thing around being open to new opportunities and sort Mm -hmm. of chilling out a little bit and being going with the flow and listening to other people when they point to you in a certain direction and taking that leap of faith but yeah thank you so much I really enjoyed it it's it's really very self-indulgent to spend an hour talking about yourself so thank you for that You've been listening to Genuine Humans, brought to you by The Social Element. If you loved what you heard, remember to subscribe or you can find out more at www.thesocialelement.agency. 